HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Sombra, an award-winning artisanal mezcal handcrafted in Santiago, Matatlan, Oaxaca, Mexico. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast, the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Chef Farmer, that's Chef and Farmer Matthew Rayford. And in today's episode, we're going to talk to Matthew about returning to his roots on his family farm. His new Gullah Geechee cookbook, Bress and Yam. And we'll hear Matthew's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Julia brought inspiration from France back with her to the United States. She wanted her homeland, one that she spent considerable time away from, to embrace the same traditions rooted in the soil and reflected on the table she found in France. Now, in the face of American progress virtually obliterating so many traditions, marrying old world ways to new world ingenuity was something Julia wanted to inspire. She wasn't trying to make American food more French, but to instill the French appreciation for land, craft, and good food into American life. Someone who has also traveled far and wide found his purpose in cooking and is busy marrying his heritage to today's slow food movement is Chef Farmer, that's his own moniker, a mashup of chef and farmer, Matthew Rayford. Matthew was lucky enough to grow up surrounded by homegrown vegetables and meat on his family farm in Brunswick, Georgia, near the barrier islands of the Atlantic coast. Determined to leave the South for good, Matthew served in the Army and was stationed around the world. After his service, he attended the Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park, New York, and worked as a professional chef. In 2011, he returned to his family farm, embracing his ancestral roots. Having earned certification as an ecological horticulturalist from UC Santa Cruz's Center for Agroecology and Sustainable Food Systems, I dare you to say that 10 times fast, he's worked with the help of his sister, Althea, to rebuild the family's Gilliard Farms. Matthew's new cookbook is a testament to his journey. Bress and Yam, Gullah Geechee Recipes from a Sixth-Generation Farmer, chronicles an African-American story of self-reliance and resilience. It features time-honored family recipes and Gullah Geechee traditions blended with Matthew's international and professional experience. He joins us today to share his heritage and talk about his new book. Welcome to the podcast, Matthew. Hey, how are you doing? Not bad, not bad. How are you? I'm doing well. No complaints sitting out here at the farm. I was just chatting to my son just a second ago, Evan, about um, feeding the chickens and the hogs before we got on. 
important. And now, is it already a hot summer down there? Or who hot would be calling it something mild? It is. Uh, it's been raining. We've been having these like crazy thunderstorms. Um, and then I, I don't know if you've ever been around a place where it feels like um, like you're sweating for no reason, even with the air conditioner on. <laughs> That's kind of how it feels here right now, like muggy. I think I think I have. I lived in South Florida for a while. Oh, where then you like, know exactly <laughs> what I'm talking about. Humid all the time, and then you're yes. like, "Is this thing, is this thing working?" And I've also stayed somewhere. Where was it? Which had something called a, a swamp cooler, which yes. is like an old fashioned, like primitive air conditioner. Yes, yeah, doesn't work all that well. It doesn't work especially. all that well either. That's <laughs> yeah. why I call it's it like a slow cooler. breeze up up ahead. Now it's going to dry. Actually, that was oddly in Arizona. Now that I think about it, yeah. So, I wanted to start with some context and stuff because it's kind of become talked about, I think, widely more and more. But I'd sort of like to hear directly from you about, you know, who are the Gullah Geechee and and, and what distinguishes their food and cooking? Set the kind of background for us. Okay, no worries. Well, uh, the Gullah Geechee as a whole are um, folks that were enslaved of West African and Central African descent that were brought um, to the, between the Carolinas and North Florida. Um, and so what happened is as emancipation came along um, and there was what we call white flight, there was this whole piece of like folks that were just left on these islands. Um, and then I am, and that, and that would be considered a saltwater geechee. I would be considered a freshwater Geechee because I was raised on the inland, um, but only like about 10, 15 minutes from the water, from from the beach, actually. Um, And so not only were we left, but we were left to our own demise, for lack of better words. Folks really thought that we would just die off. Um, And instead, um, not realizing that we were extremely resilient and we had already been fishing these waters and hunting in this area. So, um, so survival was, uh, was just going to happen, you know? So very, very resilient group of folks, um, held on to a lot of, uh, kind of a Patois Creole, West African English mashup of language. Um, Mm -hmm. I personally was not able to, I, I wasn't able to speak it as a child because my father always wanted us to ensure that we spoke the king's or queen's English, whichever one you want to call it. <laughs> um, and uh, that's that that goes back to you being in London. Um, and uh, <laughs> Which and, I uh, speak neither. But, but right, right, right. Fair enough. Go, fair enough. <laughs> but um, yeah, my dad was like, you know, when you said something like um, over there, water, water. My dad, like, what, what did you say? You'd like quickly be like, oh, I meant we're going to go over there. <laughs> and we're going to get into the water. You know, like it was like very, you know, it, it just wasn't allowed to speak it. So I probably was not around. I heard it from like my great grandmother, even from um, even from my grandmother from time to time. But it wasn't something that was regularly spoken. Um, but it is a language unto itself. Got it. Yeah. And and was part of the reason I just wanted to to ask you about what you said about the sort of expected demise, mm-hmm. which I think relates to you going back to farm as well, is one of the things is this area in the Barrier Islands, they weren't the prime agricultural land in the Deep South that people would have tried to held on to, was, or, or I'm, I'm mistaken. Well, well it was a little bit of everything, though, because even though it was built on a silty, sandy loam, because, you know, we are close to the ocean, right? Mm-hmm. Um, rice was way before it was King Cotton. And so a huge rice culture um, comes from these barrier islands and from this area, this part of the coast. Mm-hmm. Um, as a matter of fact, um, I, and I say this often, the 100 miles of coastline that Georgia has is one third of the coastline, uh, one third of the marshland, excuse me, for the United States. So our estuaries are bountiful um, in seafood. Um, mm-hmm. Our estuaries uh, allow for seafood to be all over. Um, and so it's become a, a, a real thing here to, to be seafood and hunting heavy. 
Well, that that's a good thing. So yeah, definitely. Was the demise more related to the difference between where rice, the rice business versus the cotton business was at the time of emancipation? I think it was more. It more had to do with you know if you're left on a on an island on a barrier island, like people don't expect you to live. I mean, you're cut off from everything. Like you're cut off from the rest of the world. And so I think they felt that because these people would, because we were cut off from the west of the rest of the world, we would just die off instead. Oh, so thrive. actually, you're saying something quite sinister. Like it was sort of a passive but dark oh, solution, right? Yeah. Passive but direct solution. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and well, that's, a, that's, that's a bummer. But how did you were is. saying about this evening? So how did that impact the the food ways of the Golagichi? Well, so it impacted us because we we were then on this path of not only uh, surviving, but it was also like we were able to create stronger traditions that were already within our thing. So we became uh, some expert fishermen, you know, mm-hmm. expert hunters. Uh, we also ensured that our family learned these things, too. So one of the things that I learned how to do at a very young age, I've been, I was about five, eight, five, nine, by the time I was like 13 years old, um, I topped off at 5'11". So no one that's listening think that I'm like 6'5". <laughs> um, I topped off at 5'11". You're an early bloomer. I was an early bloomer. Um, and But I learned how to do what's called scening. And that's, I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but let me paint a picture really quick. That's where... You stand on a beach with a very long net with two giant poles um, at each end. One person walks out into the ocean. One person stands on the on the edge of the beach. And then once that person gets out as far as they feel they can go, they then start to turn left or right and start walking. Then the other person starts walking slowly into the ocean and once they get within that turn and they're almost equal in the water, they then start dragging that net forward. And as they drag that net forward, they bring in shrimp, crab, shark, you name it. It all comes in that net. Mm. And so I grew up doing that as a kid. Um, I grew up doing cast netting. I never really got good at it, though, because I always felt it was too heavy to throw out this big net with uh, with these uh with these weights on it, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And, uh, but my great grandfather, my, uh, my grandfather, and even my stepfather were very great casters. Like they could, they could throw one of those big nets out and, and it would like open all the way up, hit the water. Um, they'd let it go all the way to the bottom. And then when you pulled on it, the whole thing would cinch up. So anything that it had went over, it would then cinch into it because as you pulled, the weights would just kind of come together really quick and everything would be caught inside that net. And so those are some other ways that a lot of um, the way that we did things here was done. And so it wasn't just like a fishing pole or a cane pole or something like that. There was a lot of kind of net fishing, you know, and then the bountiful oysters that were here and that are still here are just amazing. Um, So, yeah, so it was, it was really about, Using what you had. And I think that also goes back to my thought process on on chickens. Um, and so I think this is one of the big deals for me is because, you know, the whole thought process of frying chicken was not is not really a big thing in this area. Mm-hmm. It was more like um, you fried or you stewed a chicken when it was old, when it wasn't giving you any eggs. Mm-hmm. So if you can imagine being on a barrier island if you killed off all your chickens just eating chicken, that means you had no eggs, right? Yeah, no, and 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 that's actually very French. I mean, that's why cocovin is a dish. It's what absolutely, we did absolutely. An, and well, there's that, no fresh chicken dishes in France because chickens were generally. I mean, what until nineteen. Uh, until after I think World War II, chicken just was not consumed at the it, rate that it is now. Right, absolutely, and I'm glad you brought that up because. Um, a spatchcock chicken, which is one of the recipes that are inside my book, it's a long, slow cook. And you split the bird in half to get the bird to cook, you know, evenly, you know, because mm-hmm. it's an old chicken. 
right? It's not. Who <laughs> probably like had a name because you knew right, it. It probably had a name because you knew them. So that's kind of uh, where I kind of like land on like food and um, and even like thinking about the land as like the source, right? And that mm-hmm. different regions of the of the land um, produces different things in different times of the year. And I think that that's also like one of my favorite things about watching Julia Childs as a kid was that it, you're you know when you in your intro when you mentioned about how you know she was talking about farmers and seasonality of food and things like that and you know there weren't hardly anybody during her time period that was talking about that right everything was still canned. Well, right. That was you know? all. It was all. That's what I was referring to with old, old world and new school. Right. Yeah. Those were old ways, and the scientists and the industrialists were telling you that they were inefficient and inefficient. stupid. And right. we've got these new ways that are modern and better. So mm-hmm. just throw those away. And throw Julia away, was like, right. no. Julia came back from France where that <laughs> like, happened. Right. And nah, she was nah, like, nah. Wait a second. Wait this doesn't make second. any sense to me, and it tastes terrible. Right. And so I grew up eating more like what Julia had as a conversation. I, I grew up still eating a lot of the old ways, so to speak, right? So we, we like, we didn't, like, when, when I ate blackberries, they were in season, you know? Um, when I ate strawberries, they were in season. I never ate a strawberry that, that it, it, anywhere that I didn't eat somewhere between January and March. Like, I didn't eat strawberries any other time of the year. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, tomatoes. And if you did, it was jam that you made? Or? Yeah, it was jam. Right. So fresh strawberries, maybe I should say. And then, um, yeah, everything was super seasonal. Like tomatoes. I don't remember eating tomatoes. and cu- I, Lots of salad type stuff during the summer, early, early fall, maybe. Um, but then again, we also have a long growing season here. Right? Yeah, so, I think I read something about that that I was very jealous about because I'm big on advocating to try to get people to stop eating tomatoes out of mm-hmm, season. Mm-hmm. But you in Georgia, where you are, you have like a really long tomato season, no? Yeah, so I can literally start growing tomatoes late February, March, depending on what the weather's like, and can keep pushing on tomatoes almost to December. Just because wow. of the wow. long... Yeah, I mean, it doesn't get below 70 until after after December here. Usually. So if you're in New York and you want a tomato out of season, you just need to drive south. Right. You just need to drive <laughs> south, baby. And we got them for you. <laughs> well, Black, French, Cherokee, purple, you know, <laughs> best boys, you name it. We got it. Nice. So let's talk about that, though, because obviously you, you've talked about your childhood mm-hmm. and the importance of this place and, and, and what the Gullah Geechee traditions are, which are quite natural. But mm-hmm. you left deter- determined not to come back. Yeah. And you made your way in the world and you became a professional chef, an accomplished mm-hmm. one. Thank and you. here you are back on the farm. So so what was it that led you back? You know, what led me back was uh, I opened my mouth and inserted my foot, basically, is what I did. Because I had been for years telling my grandmother, I ain't never, ever coming back to the South not to live. It just ain't happening. And she got my sister and I here in 2010. And she'd always been saying, baby, what are we going to do with all this land? And I finally sat there with my mom, my aunt, and my nana. And she was like, we want to talk to you. You and your sister sit down. Let's have this talk. And I was like, okay, I have no idea what they're getting ready to say, but okay, it must be something like super duper important because everybody. I'm sorry, I, what were you do? Were you still a pro, uh, at that moment? Were you an executive chef at a restaurant? Oh yes, yes. So I was the executive chef at the House of Representatives at that point in time. I was uh, working for Hote Catering Company, which was a part of the Ridge, or I believe is a part of the Ridgewell Group in Washington D.C. And so at the time, I had five properties. I, I had. Uh, National Defense University, Pentagon Conference Center and Library, National Archives, Canadian Embassy, and the House of Representatives. So five properties, 125 employees, um, sometimes six, seven different menus going on all at one time. So at that point in time, that's exactly what I was doing. Okay. So now you're back in. Now I'm back. Yeah. 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 So, you know, so here we go. You know, my, uh, my dad and. My mom and well, my dad, 
I told my dad we were getting ready to come down. My sister and I both were coming down. And he was like, yeah, he was like, well, yeah. He was like, I think your, your grandma want to talk to you about something. I don't know what it is, but she keeps asking whether you're coming down. And I was like, yeah, we're going to come down. It was to a family reunion. Mm-hmm. So here I am. I'm down here at this family reunion. And um, I had a very long conversation uh, with my sisters. We were driving down from Washington, D.C., like, you know, do you have any idea what they're going to ask us? You know, it's like, no, I don't. I have no idea, you know. We get here, they reach underneath the table and are like, hey, what are we going to do with all this land? And I, it felt like the ancestors just said, come home. And I literally turned and said, Nana, we should go back to farming it. And they reached under the table and gifted my sister and I some land. And we have been home. I have been home ever since. My sister has worked everywhere from D.C. and now she's in Atlanta comes home quite often to help do everything from uh, plant rice to help me get in citrus trees. And also she is like the family uh, archivist. So she keeps track of all of the little pieces of paper that I have found, the letters that I've found written between my grandparents talking about food um, and food ways. And a lot of it has to do with like what time they planted something or when they harvest something or what they took to market or what they hope to have. So, yeah. Well, wow. and so was, did you have family members who were living on the farm, but they weren't in, I'm using air quotes, farming it per se. Well, so when I got home, there was no one farming the land. The land had been fallow for almost 20 years at that point. Um, it, it, you know, the only thing people were doing was cutting the grass. So to speak. So you really Everything were was- starting yeah, I was starting from scratch, from zero, actually. So just to give you an idea of how I grew up out here when I was a kid, when I was out here as a kid, there was uh, the Union School, which is on our property, built in 1907. So from 1907 to 1955, it was the only place that folks of African descent went within 25 miles of here. Then there was my Nana's house and my great grandma's house. That was it. And then um, coming back home, um, then there were other houses on the property. But like the land that I grew up on farming and well, not farming, but like helping farm as a kid um, was all fallow. It had two houses on it now. Um, Part of it just had like six giant oak trees on it. You know, the old pear tree was gone from when I was a kid. The smokehouse had been torn down. The corn house had been turned down, um, torn down the coal house. All of it had been, you know, taken away and all those kinds of things. So it was definitely a transition of me starting from scratch. Did that mean um, just putting some pieces together was one advantage, though, that it had never been a sort of modern day commercial farm sprayed with pesticide after pesticide? Yes, it, it, it was actually a godsend that that had never, ever happened. Um, due to a lot of different things. One, because uh, they wouldn't sell us any fertilizer. And two, we had to do our own seed saving most of the time because um, we couldn't buy seed. So by default almost, um, and the lack of uh, resources that were available, um, we just kept doing things like we did, which was compost and the honey truck with compost tea and all that stuff. So, yeah. And did that make it faster to to restart? Oh, no, re- it, didn't restart? It, it didn't necessarily make it faster. It, it kind of, it, you know, it, it, it actually made me sit down um, for a moment and just be humbled by the thought process of what it took to farm back in the day. Mm. Yeah. And did the timing coincide, though, that because I think I read you were involved already maybe as a chef or had been interested in the slow food movement and that oh, yeah. sort of that timing sounds like it was pretty good in terms of people really starting to refocus on farming in different ways. Definitely, definitely, definitely. So there was this whole time period where, um, for lack of better terms, I think that there was this thought process in my head that slow food was like the is the way, you know, not being in a rush for every single thing. And I didn't grow up also even going to a grocery store, just buying everything inside of a grocery store. Like I literally grew up buying and I don't 
a lot of people might remember this, produce sections inside grocery stores used to be super small. They weren't mm-hmm. big, giant. Like right now, the whole, you know, you can walk inside a grocery store and the whole thing is all groceries, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't that. So um, growing up like that, it gives you kind of a different sense of uh, how things are and how things are going to be. <laughs> or how things should taste. Or how things should taste, yeah. Because when you eat a tomato, like fresh off the vine, and I'm talking like, and I'm not talking about like when you go to a grocery store and you see the three tomatoes on the vine that someone's cut and set there. You know, I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about like <laughs> physically going out and harvesting your own uh, little tomatoes and big tomatoes. And th- it's the, the taste is so much different. So much well, different. And I think it's addictive. Once you've tasted vegetables in their proper form, right? you're just like, I'm not going to eat that. I'm never going to eat that thing again, which is why I believe Julia Childs was so daggum amazing because she made sure that whatever she was making, it was like that time for that thing. And that's one of the things that I've also always loved. Well, and right, that's Alice Waters and sort of the California secret right if you use the best ingredients Mm -hmm. there's not that much alchemy you got to do to them right 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 and so that i think between between edna lewis julia childs and alice waters i think i've had some of the best mentors i could ever have when it comes to those things because just like watching you know mentors without actually being connected you know what I'm saying? Well, but I am, I'm, I, Alice Waters and I have become very dear friends. But I mean, without being connected to either one of, of them like that has just been an amazing thing, you know, because I've been able to like really take a brief moment and look at what cookery is really about. You know, that it's, it is about the freshest ingredients. It is about getting things in a timely manner. It is about putting those things on the plate. And I believe that the way those things have, have been, were betrayed to me as a youth, it set me up for perfection in the, in the future. All right, we're going to come right back and we'll keep talking with chef farmer, Matthew Rayford, about his new cookbook, Bress and Yam. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Sombra, an award-winning artisanal mezcal handcrafted in Santiago, Matatlan, Oaxaca, Mexico. Sombra owns and operates their own distillery, which ensures consistent quality, supply, and environmentally friendly production methods. Sombra is committed to sustainability, recycling distillation waste into adobe bricks to build homes for those in need. Learn more at sombramezcal.com. That's S-O-M-B-R-A mezcal. Welcome back. We're talking to Chef Matthew Rayford about his new cookbook, Bress and Yam, Gulagichi Recipes from a Sixth Generation Farmer. So I wanted to ask you some more about the farm, but I think we can kind of cover it in tandem with the cookbook. And I loved one of the opening quotes that I just think is so poignant that says, the legacy is in the soil. And Mm -hmm. you were talking about your ancestral connection to this land, as well as the very significant historic importance of this land in American history and the history of enslaved people. So how did you capture this legacy is in the soil idea, or how did you set about to capture it in writing this book? Could you repeat that just one more time, please? Well, I was Sorry. curious. I loved the quote, the legacy is in the soil mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in the book. And I was curious how, why you put that quote in, what it means to you, and then how it kind of is reflected by how you put the book together. Well, okay. So a couple of things. When I did uh, a TED a TED talk um, in Savannah, that was the title, the legacy is in the soil. And all of the things that I've seen, agricultural driven, food driven, um, the terroir, the soil, the terra nova, it is, it is where everything comes from. And if it's not being taken care of, there will be no next. You know, there will be nothing for us to harvest. 
Mm-hmm. And so that's why I believe that the legacy is in the soil. What you do with the soil uh, becomes what happens in the future. And so within the book, I took what I call the elements, right? Ocean, earth, wind, fire, nectar, spirits, and use those elements as my, uh, my backdrop for all of the recipes. Um, one of the reasons that it was funny, like I'll, I'll use the earth, um, as, as, as a starting point, there aren't any recipes of things that come out the earth that have a bunch of meat in it, right? Because Mm -hmm. meat wasn't necessarily a major part of our eating, right? It was vegetables more so than it was anything else. Like meat Mm -hmm. was like an extra, like, Oh, you Mm -hmm. had some meat in there, you know, they're like, Mm -hmm. wow. Right. Because you know, my running joke about collard greens is like, you don't put, you know, 20 pounds of ham hocks in 10 pounds of greens. You put a little piece of ham hock in there for that smokiness. Mm. Like the meat is an afterthought. You mm. don't, you're, you're, it's a piece. It's, it's so minuscule. It doesn't even matter whether it was in there or not. Mm-hmm. So to be stuck on the fact that I got to cook this like this, when there's so many other ways to add flavor in, I'm like, shoot, I can, I can add garlic caramelized onions, smoked paprika, and still give it that smokiness that, uh, that I'm looking for. I have a feeling you're referencing a debate that I might not be up on, but I assume it's some flack that you've taken at different times for how you cook your collard, collard greens or how you refer to what is Gullah Geechee food. <laughs> what is Gullah Geechee? yeah. Yeah, I've, I've taken a little bit of flack on it, but I think it's all mostly been in fun. You know, like, man, how you make collard greens without putting, you know, smoked meat in it? And I was like, uh, there's a lot of different ways to add flavor. And we've never been caught in one way of making things. I think I'll use my mom's Effie's Shrimp Creole as a as a great reference. So okay, if you it. were looking at things from, uh, from a, uh, how would I say, a very... Gullah Geechee way of looking at things. You would look at my mom's shrimp creole and go, oh, um, why didn't why didn't you call it a perlu? Right? Because, you know, the folks in Charleston call it a perlu. And I'm like, well, I grew up eating shrimp creole because my mom's friends were from Louisiana. And when they made this dish, that's what they called it. So that's what my mom called it. Right? It's not that it's not a one-pot cookery deal. It's not that it's not part of of that, but it's just what we called it. And I think that that's also one of those ways of like thinking about how to define things is, is also being open that, that there's so many ways to call it or to talk about food. Because if I then take that same one pot cookery and put it into a Spanish context or Spain context, it becomes paella, right? So it's these three dishes all made very similarly, all having peppers and onions and garlic and rice being the primary, right? But all have three different names. And so that is what um, I also wanted Bresam Yam to invoke is that there's all kinds of ways to talk about the same food. And that's why the dishes are actually in there like that. Well, I love that because that speaks to Something that that is is funny is in that it's coming up now, but then it's also people are getting very territorial and rigid with definitions is that Mm -hmm. foodways have been shared and evolved and overlap. And there's actually, even though they might have different names, there's more commonality and connections again between even the, even though it took a long time, hundreds of years ago, there was fluidity between. Right all these places in terms mm-hmm. of movement and, and trading. So I, I, I love that you, that was a, a great example. I think it's fascinating because I think as a, someone who grew up in the Midwest, I, I don't think I ate paella until I went to Europe in my twenties, but that, so paella to me is always this like Spanish European thing, but right. you connected that up. I'm like, Oh yeah, duh. It is very much like, you know, shrimp creole. Shrimp and creole obviously and there's perlu. a very big historical yeah. connection there. I love Right. That. There you go. Yeah. And, so, and that's the other piece, right? Because where I'm at in coastal Georgia, it was originally owned by the Spaniards. So when you start putting those things in the context, it becomes even a larger piece, you know? 
Yeah, no, and and especially the you know it gets very complicated. But but right. I think um, I, I wanted to ask you about. Well, maybe we'll just rise this up because I'm thinking about um, Dr. Jessica Harris's book High on mm. the Hog and how yes. that's such a really useful reference point about how all of these things have definitions, mm-hmm. but interrelate. And what's the difference between someone who's Creole and Cajun or Acadian and, mm-hmm. and from the low country and all of that. And, but I think it's, it's quite endlessly fascinating, but I wanted to ask you since I feel like Gullah Geechee culture is kind of having a moment between your book mm-hmm. and being featured in the Netflix um, adaptation of High on the Hog. I was mm-hmm. just curious for you as someone who is now sort of living that heritage in a not necessarily like historical reenactment way, but a modern way. Mm-hmm. What's your feeling about where it's going? Is its moment going to last? Is it going to become more assimilated? How are you feeling about it? Well, I feel it's going to be just like all of Southern cooking, you know, because if you look at where we were just a little less than 20 years ago, right? Where Southern food was still considered uh, not popular. Maybe I should say it that way. But now I can go to any major city in the United States and they're trying to ensure they have the most authentic Southern food ever. They're, they're just, they're fighting for it, right? Like, no, my, <laughs> no, my people are from here. No, my people are from here. Oh no, the, these recipes are more authentic than yours. Like there's a lot of that, right? But yeah. I think Gullah Geechee is going to hold some of those same types of things because it's also become a period in time where we are much more acceptant of our true nature and our true roots. Farming, I mean, if you go back 20 years ago, farming wasn't cool. Mm. Farm was not cool. Farm was like, you do what? Oh, yeah, okay, I couldn't be doing that, right? And then all of a sudden, over the last 10 years, look how many people have gravitated, um, or I would, I would, as I would call it, um, especially with black folks, it's almost a reverse migration where folks are going back to family land, going back to... Um, farming, you know, so I think there's there's become that. And with that resurgence of people going back to the land and understanding and having a value and appreciation for food, um, I don't think this is ever going to stop. I think the only way that this would stop is there is no way the human race couldn't be here because I believe that people are starting to understand the effects of um, clean living of eating healthy, of eating seasonally. Um, We've never had so many things go awry um, in the world as we have over the last 10 years when it comes Mm -hmm. to uh, everything from pandemics to, you know, global things happening, right? We've we've never had so much, so many things happening. And we're starting to realize it it all goes back to how we've treated the earth. And so we need to, uh, to come back to that form of, Understanding that, for lack of better terms, the words slow food does not mean that you won't eat. It just means that you eat in a way that is healthy, not just for you, but also for the planet. Well, and and certainly I think one of the things you you haven't hit hard is if you look in terms of systemic racism, African-Americans for a lot of reasons have essentially almost been poisoned by the Mm -hmm. industrial food system. And there's, I think, more awareness. And I think maybe what you're referring to is there was stigma because of the the difficulties and stigma of sharecropping that if you were going to succeed in assimilated societies as an African-American, you needed to move toward being professional class, not a laborer, right? Well, you know, I... That is actually a great way to put it because I look at it um, the same way with cooking. So um, cooking didn't really become a profession in the United States until the 1980s, a profession, right? Mm. Prior to that, it was considered you had a trade. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a profession. There weren't a lot of people that were cooks. There were a lot of people that were cooks. There was very few people that ever had the moniker chef. Or certainly celebrity chef. That was right. <laughs> and definitely if you want to go into the celebrity world, that wasn't even heard of. And then if you were to do that, you need to come from another country. 
You couldn't be from the United States and be considered to be this gourmand. You weren't considered to be uh, an aficionado of anything that had to do with food. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Because they went to this industrial craze, right? And so here you have all of these different ways of to do things and people that have been doing them forever like that were considered to be poor. So yeah, systemic racism, uh, a classism, all that was in there. Um, because you, you weren't. And then if you even look at the amount of, if you look at 19, the 1980s to the year 2000, right? And you look at how many people all of a sudden got that name chef. You'd be like, oh, my God, I hadn't even. Yeah, because if you go back to the 1900s to now, black folks just cooked. We never Mm. even got we never even got the term chef, even though if we were raised, you know, James Hemings is like one of the few. Right. That got Mm. that moniker of chef, which means you are in charge of a kitchen. Prior to that, you had to be European. Well, and even then he was Thomas Jefferson's. Right, right, right. He was actually Thomas Jefferson's cook. Even even though he'd been trained in... in, Even though he'd been classically trained. So I think it's those kinds of of pieces that, like, you know, which is a much larger conversation. um, That's why it has become this thing of considering it to be a profession. Like, my dad didn't want me to go into culinary for that reason. He had never seen anybody black that was uh, a chef per se, working in that, and in, in not only just in that level, but also being respected and given that money. So it's one thing to, to be working a position, but then have no respect, right? Not really getting paid for it. That's something totally different than actually having the name, you know, having the title and the pay, you know? So he was like, nah, there's a lot of things you can be cooking any one of them. Well, and it's interesting to think about the, um, it's not a very large number of uh, celebrity chefs who are black, and a lot of them have fancy training because that helps bring legitimacy to their career choices as well as their their status as, as black people in the profession. And you know, but you know what's really interesting with that, Todd, in, in a way to also think about it? Our story is no different from the European that when you when you look at any and you read any of their memoirs or have conversations, they're like, my grandmama from Italy, she taught me how to make this pasta, right? So what's the difference with that? And when I say my grandma taught me how to make this sweet potato pie, there's no difference. We, le- we, we learned the exact same way and then went on to get classically trained. You well, feel I... Yeah, no, I'm struck. That's yeah. Jacques Pepin's story, right? His mother right. and aunt—that's who took, ta- taught him to cook. Then he went on, and he worked. and then he went on. Right, we yeah. we we are of no difference. And I think, yeah, if we go back and pull in the systemic racism and things like that, it's the same story. It's just we weren't allowed to to get to that next level, get to that next point. And now, where we are, um, it's almost like you you know once you grab a hold of it, you ain't letting it go. You know, like. You know, I remember being in school and and someone, uh, one of my chef instructors talking to me about a Mornay sauce. And I was like, oh, you talking about macaroni and cheese sauce? And he was like, no. And I was like, well, you make it the same way. And he was like, no, it's a Mornay. You do this and do that. I said, yeah, that's the same way you make a macaroni and cheese sauce. Right. And so it's also that. Right. Like, no, this was written by this person. And this is the only like things used to be so super duper rigid. Right. And I, you know, even my running joke of like having polenta the first time, I was like, this is yellow grits. Like, what are y'all tripping on? <laughs> no, it and can't like, be until you're no, like, well, they're both made pol- from corn. So. Right. And just one is ground a little bit finer. And then my running joke with that was, but I've eaten this just like this. Like I, I've, I've eaten savory grits, so to speak. I've eaten that. I've eaten it sweet. I've had it fried. I've had it grilled. <laughs> well, back, back to right what we were talking about with foodways and how right. I think the positive thing I think we can get out of all, all of this is there is more shared experience in food than there is difference. Then there is difference. Yes, most definitely. As most long as you definitely. let go of termino- one's terminology being right or wrong. Right, right. Now, you know what? And I guess I think. And I, I know you haven't asked the question yet, but if I may, 
One of the things that I've always, that I always gravitated towards when I was sitting down, you know, like watching uh, Julia Childs on PBS was she never, to me, as you know, to me, I never felt like she was separating what she was cooking as being so friggin' elevated that nobody else could do it. You know what I'm saying? Like I watched it and was obtaining the thing like here, this is what you would get. This is how you get it. And this is how it's going to come out. It wasn't any pretentiousness within, within the conversation. It was an appreciation, which is something entirely different. Yes. All right. We're, we're, hold that thought. We're going to come okay. back and we're going to get your official Julia moment. And, oh, okay. Uh, I don't know if you're going <laughs> to repeat it or we'll find out in a second. Okay. No worries. Get in touch. Send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org or better yet, you can tweet us at juliachildjcf. Let us know what you think about today's show and you can share your ideas for future guests. In case you missed it, the 2021 recipient of the Julia Child Award is esteemed culinary historian, editor, writer, and TV host, Tony Tipton Martin. Tony is the author of the multi-award winning Jubilee, Recipes from Two Centuries of African-American Cooking, which very much relates to what Matthew and I were just talking about. She's also the editor-in-chief of Cook's Country. Her $50,000 grant from the foundation will be used by the Sunday Youth Project to train and mentor a new generation of food writers. Check out juliachildaward.com, as well as episode 69 of Inside Julia's Kitchen, for our conversation with Tony. Stay with us. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see from Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she's inspired them in their career. Matthew, what's your Julia moment? Um, it's amazing that you played that clip just now, because one of the things I was going to say was Julia was never afraid to make a mistake. Not that you saw. And like the way she just said just now, she was like, I didn't have the courage to do this exact thing. However, if I would have, this is how it would have come out. Like being able to, to, to actually say that what you were doing didn't come out the way you wanted it to has, has helped me shape how I look at food and how I approach cooking. That I may slip and make mistakes. There are going to be those times because I'm human. You know, and I think that that also is one of those things that helped shape me into like the chef that I am. And just seeing someone else that's able to say, eh, you know, this could have came out better. However, it's good, <laughs> you know, and I mean, have, I really don't think there has been anyone that has said it like that since Julia. Mm. You know, I don't think any, every, everyone, everything is. Uh, no, I when think Julia that's made true. A dish, right. When, when Julia Childs made a dish, it was what it was when she finished it. There wasn't all of the like uh, what they call the. The food show thing where like this is how you make it and this is what it would look like when you finish it. You know what mm -hmm. I'm saying? It was like, mm -hmm. this is how you make it. And this is what it came out as. Oops, I made a mistake. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm. but here's, you know, and I think that that means a lot that chefs are not this one rigid thing, right? That it's much bigger, right? And that if you want to walk in those shoes and walk behind the most amazing uh, folks that have been out there and have put us out there and have, have brought food to the world like it is, because we can't be afraid to make mistakes. And we can't be afraid to not identify with those mistakes and move on past them and say, well, yeah, that's kind of how it happened. The dish burnt on the bottom. But if I'd have turned it down a little bit earlier, it wouldn't have happened. Great. I, I, I love how much you appreciate that. And, and I, I think that that's the I mean, it's sort of the non mystery of Julia is her 
ability to convey that and to release people from that. And I'm struck by what you're saying that actually where food television is moved is mm-hmm. more toward the perfection, right? The, right. the, the judging is on presentation, right? Mm-hmm. And even mm-hmm. though I always think I love it when like, it's always the most tasting food that wins. And the, if your presentation is great, but the food isn't, it doesn't taste right, then you'll lose. But there's still more <laughs> emphasis on, right? Right, right, right. Right. Yeah. I think, I, I mean, you know, it, it means everything, you know, and, and for me, it means everything. And, you know, I, I, I feel very honored and humbled to even be on the show with you, Todd, um, to even have a chance to, to talk about um, kind of, like I said, a mentor that I never met, you know, it's, uh, it says a lot. Well, we are honored and humbled to have you on and uh, to hear about your journey, which takes has taken a lot of courage and to hear and learn about your mentors like your Nana and your father and uh, the work you do with your sister. So thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you so very much for having me. Our pleasure. And thanks, everyone, for listening. To keep up with life on the family farm, it's at Shafarmer Matthew. So it's chef and then the word farmer, but just one mm-hmm. F, and Facebook and Instagram, and it's at Gilliard Farms on Twitter. The book is Bress and I Am, Gullagichi Recipes from a Sixth Generation Farmer by Matthew Rayford with Amy Page Condon, and it features really beautiful photographs by Siobhan Egan and styling by Bevan Valentine Jaber. It's out now from W.W. Norton's imprint, The Countryman Press. Ask or search for it at your favorite bookseller. So did you sign up yet? We have an exciting program in store August 15th when we celebrate Julia's birthday with the Santa Barbara Culinary Experience. I'm hosting a virtual conversation with the Oscar-nominated filmmakers of RBG, Julie Cohen and Betsy West, as well as Julia's great-nephew, Alex Prudhomme. We're going to be talking about the new full-length documentary, Delving into Julia's Life and Impact. To register, go to sbce.events and follow at SP Culinary Experience on Instagram. For all the latest from the foundation, it's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF and I'm at T Shulkin on Twitter. The Julia Child audio clip from the French chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks as always to my co-producer of the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Amanda Wang. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcast. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the AHRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>